I'm home. This is the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look into video gaming from the classic era until today. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number eight of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Uh, check through uh, social media and emails, uh, nothing this time out. So if you want to get a hold of the show in any way, um, you can get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Also, there is a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. Also, I have uh, a social media footprint going with this show. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. Uh, on Facebook, all you have to do is search uh, Confessions of an Arcade Addict. On Twitter, my ha- handle is uh, at arcadeaddict underscore B. On Instagram, it's arcadeaddictbrian, all one word, of course. And on Tumblr, it is uh, tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So, there are ways to get a hold of the show. Um, Also, you can get a hold of me on Anchor if you listen there as well. That is anchor.fm slash C-O-A-A. So, if you want to get a hold of me, share some stories, uh, have any ideas for the show, any uh, games that you want to have reviewed... Uh, don't be shy, get a hold of me, and we'll see if we can make that happen. So, without any further ado, we shall go into Top 10s. Top 10s. 1982. Now, in Episode 7, I did 1981, and... That was probably the hardest top 10 list I had to do because so many good games came out in 1981. This one is no different. Uh, 1982, the games are getting better, more diverse. You're seeing uh, almost every sort of genre, either if it wasn't invented in 82, it was certainly represented in 82. Um there were some games that came out that were absolutely mind-blowing some were you know fun to play others were a combination of the two some were very intimidating which i'll get into in are you experienced so without any further ado let's get let's get rolling once again this is a top 10 list of my personal favorite games from a particular gear they're not in any sort of order, just order in, they're just in order of how I uh, type them out in my show notes file. Um, like I've said, ever since I came up with this segment, it would take too much brain power to actually kind of try to list them from 10 to 1. And like I've said before, I don't want to expend that kind of energy. So, let's get going. Tron. Now, this game blew everybody away. 
it's one of the few games that's a movie tie-in that came out right after the um, movie did. I remember, I think Tron came out in the spring of 82, or either early summer of 82, and I think by the end of 80, summer of 82, or thereabouts, the video game had hit, because everybody was talking about this game, everybody was playing this game. Um, I will do a more in-depth description of it in Are You Experienced in a future episode, but basically the game is more or less four games in one. Um, you have, of course, the ubiquitous light cycles. Um, you have the tank game. You have the uh, trying to enter the NPC cone. Um, and you have to basically shoot your way through blocks, which are moving either from left to right or right to left at particular speeds. And you basically have to blast a line to get you know move your character up into the cone to get through get past the level and then you have the uh grid bugs level which is basically you have to shoot your way through grid bugs to get to the io tower and as the game goes on it gets harder so um i love this game i still play it to this day and the funny part is i'm actually better at it now than i was in 1982 when I'm 13 years old. <laughs> it's kind of weird that way. But yeah, this game was extremely popular when it came to the Trumbull Mall Arcade. Um, I don't think Spanky's had it. I know that um, Milford Wreck had it. Um, I don't know if the arcade at uh, the arcade at um, Milford, or excuse me, Connecticut Post Mall. I don't know if it had a Tron machine. I can't remember. I want to say they it did, but I'm not certain. Um, like I said, it's always fun to play, always challenging to play, and I still enjoy it to this day, even though it's over 35 years later. Dig Dug. This one, and its counterpart slash nemesis machine, Mr. Do. I might as well link these two together since I'm talking about it. But Dig Dug was a really popular game. I mean, I liked it okay, but it, I wasn't all that keen on it. It wasn't all that hot, and it wasn't that the hotness to me in 1982. Um, but it's basically like a Mr. Do game. It basically takes place underground, and you have to deal with monsters... And, of course, they deal with them in different ways. Um, with Dig Dug, you basically have this uh, sphere, or not sphere, spear, I should say, that you throw. And it's connected to a pump. And when you, and when you hit a monster with it, you have to either hold the button down uh, and your Dig Dug will pump the monster full of air. Um, it's either you can do that or the expert way to do it is to run towards the monster, hit the button, you know, tap the button to where it throws the spear and it kit hits it and will inflate the monster and then you immediately let go of the button and you hit it again and you you're able to like blow up an enemy faster that way. Um you can also kill the monsters with rocks. Um there were 
ways to draw all of almost all of the monsters into one particular area and you would drop a rock and kill them for major points um you know and the game got really difficult uh probably past i want to say level 10 level 10 is when it really started getting hard okay um like i said you know there was a big rivalry between mr do players and dig dug players so let me get let me describe mr do first mr do um this is one of my all-time favorite arcade games um definitely top 20 maybe even top 10 um this one you are you are a clown who is uh trying to dispatch enemies with his powerball um while gathering cherries and also um luring uh monsters to where you can drop apples on them um and also keeping an eye out for uh the monster that uh will have uh a letter in it that it corresponds to extra which means if you kill that monster and you fill in all the letters you get an extra mr do you don't get free uh, at Mr. Do's when you achieve a certain score. So to me, this was more, this required a little bit more skill and a little bit more planning than Mr. Do. I mean, they're very similar games, but they're very different in their execution. But I remember in 82, probably going as far as probably 83 or 84, there was like a rivalry between Mr. Do and Dig Dug players. Um, each one thought the opposite game was um the opposite game was uh inferior to the game that they preferred and there was a lot of trash talk <laughs> there certainly was um let's see uh trommel mall arcade had mr do had a dig Dug machine i think they had them both at the same time um so you had your choice um the crew I was hanging out with, including my friend Mark, they were really good at both games, and I learned a lot from both of them. But yeah, I mean, I don't try to make me choose because, you know, I will take Mr. Do nine times out of ten, maybe even 99 times out of 100. Donkey Kong Jr. This is the first sequel in the Donkey Kong slash Mario franchise. Um, Donkey Kong, of course, came out in 81. One of the top 10 arcade games of all time if not top five maybe even top three um donkey kong jr was a radically different game in that you were in control of donkey kong's son trying to rescue donkey kong from mario it was a complete reversal of what donkey kong was donkey kong the original donkey kong it was mario aka Jumpman, trying to rescue his girlfriend from donkey kong and in Donkey Kong Jr., now you're Donkey Kong's son trying to rescue his father from Mario. It was, it was a really, really... It, was, it basically turned everything on its head. The gameplay is harder, much harder, completely different, required, you know, different, radically different strategies. And it could... It was fun, but it could be really frustrating to play. Um... I remember when it came out. I'm trying to remember. I think 
Trumbull Mall had it. I'm not 100% certain. I want to say it did, but I'm my memory's a little hazy about it. But um, Milford Rex certainly had it, and a couple other places certainly had it. I think Spanky's had it as well. Um, Joust. <laughs> this one. Yeah, this one I'll cover in our experienced as well. But when this one came out, this one was just everybody wanted to play it. I mean, especially once you figured out the killing the infinite, killing the pterodactyls infinitely um, and racking up these ridiculous scores without doing a whole lot of work. So um, basically you are a knight who, uh, who basically rides a flying ostrich and you're basically uh, flying through the screen, you know, flying around the screen, trying to joust with uh, other knights uh, who are riding basically buzzards. And the trick was you had to get your lance higher than the opponent's lance to win the joust. And then when you won the joust, the knight that you killed turned into an egg. And you basically had to get that egg before enough time passed to where it would turn into a, 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 another knight which was harder to kill. There were red knights, uh, gray knights, and dark blue knights. And if you killed a red knight and you let the egg land on the ground and you didn't pick it up immediately after a certain amount of time the egg would hatch and it would show a silver knight and then a buzzard would fly from off screen and would walk would land on the same level that the knight was on he walked towards it and once he touched it the knight would mount the buzzard and then he would be back in the fight except now it's a harder knight to kill this game is hard <laughs> it's very hard and, I mean, I was halfway decent at it, but, I mean, I knew guys who could put up, what, 300,000 points easy. I mean, never mind the uh, infinite pterodactyl trick, which I'll cover in Are Experience, but uh, Williams did come out with an update to the game to take that out of it. <clears throat> Jungle King slash Jungle Hunt. Now, this one I loved from the beginning. Um... I'm trying to remember the first place I saw it. I think it was Spanky's. It was either Spanky's or it was, or it was the bus station, not the bus station, the train station in uh, Bridge in downtown Bridgeport. But um, Jungle King was the first iteration of this game, and the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs estate basically threatened Tato, Taito, excuse me, with a lawsuit, so he changed it from Jungle King, which was basically Tarzan, including the Tarzan call, you know, of course, it, you know, it's a direct ripoff of Tarzan, there's no, there's no court in, on the face of the planet that wouldn't have, uh, found in, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, estate at all, they, that just would have been open and shut case. So what ended up happening is later in that year, they changed it to Jungle Hunt, which was basically um, your prototypical um, jungle explorer with, you know, the 
the khaki shirt, the shorts, and the hat, and basically the object of it is still the same, which is to rescue your girlfriend from the um, cannibal tribes. And it was one, two, three, it was four screens to get to them. And title games, <laughs> title games could be extremely unforgiving. <laughs> I mean, I've had my run-ins with this game, but I was actually pretty good at it at one point. I mean, the hardest part about the, uh, there, there are two screens that are hardest. The first one is the, the second screen, which is basically you're swimming, uh, you know, swimming in this lake slash river, and there are man-eating crocodiles trying to kill you. You're armed with a knife, and as they get close, you have to hit the knife button to, you know, stab with your knife to kill them for points. And once you got through a couple of sequences, they got really, really hard and really fast. So, um, so the first screen is basically uh, like a Tarzan screen. It's basically vine swinging. And you basically have to time it to where when you jump onto a vine and you're swinging and then you time it to get to the next vine and the next one and the next one until you reach the end of the stage, which shows your man diving into the water to start the river stage or the lake stage. After the lake stage, you're running uphill and basically rocks are coming down and trying to kill you and you either have to jump over them or duck under them or run under them. Uh, you get points and after a while, after a time you make it to the top and then the last screen which is basically you have to run, you have to jump over the two cannibals to get to your girlfriend who is tied up on a vine hanging from a tree limb over a boiling pot of water. <laughs> stereotypical right but um you basically had to time it to where you had the space you know to get over the uh cannibals and they would be stabbing upwards with their spears every so often so you could actually you think you have it timed right and then of course you know the cannibal stabs up and then you end up being dead so um one, you know, it was, you know, once you got past the first one, you had to jump over, basically time it, so as you jumped over the second, you would, you would, uh, touch your girlfriend, and that would be the end of the stage, and you would go on to the next set of screens, which is harder, um, the vines swing faster, um, and I think after you get past the second set of screens, now there's an ape swinging from the bottom of the vine. If you touch him, he knocks you off. So it just got harder and harder as you progressed. Uh, let's see. Robotron. I will cover this in Are You Experienced? Um, this game was just like Williams could hardly do any wrong from 1980 until I'd say probably about 1988. I mean, between their pinball machines and their arcade machines, they were doing very well for themselves. But Robotron is probably one of the top three games that Williams ever put out. I would argue that Defender is uh, more iconic than Robotron, but some people would disagree with me. But we'll get into that in Are You Experienced? Star Trek uh, Mission Combat Simulator, I think, is the subtitle. Um, this was put out by Sega in 1982. 
this went um, kind of hand in hand, sort of kind of with the, it would pay homage to like the original Star Trek, but it was all, um, it was more of the modern Star Trek, you know, uh, with the Star Trek the motion picture, which came out in 79, and of course Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which came out in 1982. I want to say this game came out after The Wrath of Khan. I'm not 100% certain. And the information is a little bit murky. But if anybody out there has any definitive information, drop me a line because I want to know. Um, basically, you're the Starship Enterprise. And you are going through various sectors, destroying uh, Klingon, Klingon ships, protecting your star bases, which also um, give, your, give your Enterprise uh, more shields, uh, more photon torpedoes, and more uh, warp drive. And you also had these uh, saucers that would fly sort of in an opposite direction of where your ship was, and you could actually lure it close so you could shoot it for points. If it actually touched you, it would drain your shields. Which, as you're trying to fight and destroy Klingon battlecruisers, that's a bit of a problem, but I'm going to cover that in, in our experience as well. Um, let's see, pole position. <laughs> Man, when this came out, forget it. Oh, everybody lost their minds when pole position came out. It was a wonderful uh, racing game. Um, basically, you're, a formula, you're driving a formula one, car, formula one car at Fuji Speedway in Japan, and you have, basically have to drive as fast as you can first to, not only to gain uh, pole position in the actual race uh, but also to pass as many cards as you can during that race and if you're able to complete I think it's three laps if not four um, you win the game and each uh, each um, car that you pass would be points and also how much time was left on the clock would be more points um shout out to john's arcade because he's like got like one of the highest scores on pole position in the game um there's only so many points you can score and um i think there's like one guy who has like more points than what john's put up but i've seen him play pole position and he's really good at it um, I think I beaten that game. I can count the number of times on one hand. Um, but yeah, it, it's wonderful to play. The arcade in Brighton has it. I every once in a while, if I'm feeling lucky, I'll jump on it and play it. Cubert. <laughs> this one, this quirky game, was one of the most iconic and one of the most popular of 1982. Um, it was quaint. It was it was cute. It was challenging. Sometimes, sometimes borderline unfair if you really wanted to get down to brass tacks. But it was one of the most popular games of that year. And it was, it, it, to me, it was always challenging. I couldn't get past level three. And basically what you are, you're this weird-looking creature with uh, a snout, with a, uh, a hollow snout for a nose, uh, you know, orange colored with eyes and feet, and basically you're on this three-dimensional pyramid, and you're hopping from 
uh, platform to platform on the pyramid, and you're turning the uh, turning the platforms co different colors. If you once you once you turn all of the the platforms on the pyramid that color, you win the round and you go on to the next round. I think you go through four rounds before you go to the next level. I think it's four. It might be five, but I think it's four. And you're, you know, and you're dealing with not only the, you know, Quayle the snake, who's your main nemesis, and you're dealing with um, uh, red, red uh, balls that are dropping down. You can't touch them because if you, you hit them, you die. And you know, you're dealing with other enemies who will come from different, who will either come from the top of the screen or the sides of the screen, depending on what uh, level you're on. And there are a couple of things to help you out. There are the multicolored discs off of the side of the pyramid at different levels. And you can basically lure the snake uh, to where you are, where there's a, a where there's a, a, a uh, a circle you jump on that circle it takes you to the top and snake just can't stop himself he'll jump off the side of the pyramid you'll get points and then you go back to the top of the pyramid and you can finish the level um there are so there are a lot of enemies in there i'm not giving this game as uh much you know as much of uh as much do as i could i'm probably going to have to review it and are you experienced so that's the top tens. Honorable mentions. Bubbles. This is this is a quirky game from uh, Williams. Um, I played it a, quite a bit in like 82 to 83, then I kind of got away from it for some reason. Basically what it is, you're a bubble in a sink. <laughs> yes, a bubble in a sink. And um, you're basically trying to gather drops of water, I think. And basically, the more uh, drops of water you gather, the bigger your bubble gets, and the slower you move, and the harder it is to control that bubble. And basically, you're trying to avoid um, large ants and razor blades and things like that in the sink. I mean, it's really funny. And you had to watch the drain of the sink because when the the drain of the sink turned green you had to make a beeline straight for the drain to get off that level and go on to the next one hard game but yeah it was really really weird um burger time i could have put this in my top tens but i never was a big fan of this game i never was i mean i played it i did okay at it but it was really really it's really hard it really really is and I mean, I see that game at the arcade in Brighton, you know, right next to where I'm playing, like, either Ms. Pac-Man or Galaga or something, and every once in a while I'm like, maybe I should play this, and I'm like, nah. <laughs> you know, even on free play, because it can be really, really uh, frustrating. You know, my buddy Mark was really good at Burger Time, and I tried to adopt a lot of his strategies in that game, and I just couldn't grok it. I just couldn't do it. So I just kind of left it alone. But I give it. I put it here because it was a very popular game. Um, basically, what it is is that you're trying to more or less make burgers, and uh, there are different platforms to where the ingredients are. Like it'll be like buns. It'll be like the bottom bun, 
then it'll be uh, the burger, then it'll be the lettuce, and then it'll be the top bun. And basically what you had to do, you had to run over each uh, part of the burger and put and basically knock it down to a um, a weight like I want to say it's a tray on the very a very bottom of the screen down from the platforms and that's how you made the burgers and once you made I think it's like four burgers you got off the screen now the hard part was you have pickles chasing you you have hot dogs chasing you you have eggs chasing you and they're constantly trying to trap you and they're constantly trying to corner you you know on a particular level to where they can you know, run into you and kill you and you have pepper spray um to defend yourself because once you hit them with the pepper spray then you can run through them and they won't kill you so you can get away from them and the trick was is that you the trick to beating it was you had to get all of these uh pickles and eggs and hot dogs on one particular bun or piece of the burger hit the pepper spray and then just run over that burger and then it would knock everything below it down into the tray that was the fast way of doing it now you only had like what three pepper shots and the only way you could get more was to um get the um bonus object at the at the like on the second level in the middle of the screen and it that you would give you points and a bonus pepper shot and unfortunately as the game goes on that gets a little bit little bit harder and a little bit harder because you know the the enemies are getting faster and they're getting more intelligent and they're you know making these like these elaborate traps to catch you in and you have to really uh hoard your pepper shots for last results you know la you know for you know last results because last resorts excuse me um in order to uh score your points and make your burgers and get on to the next stage but yeah i wasn't that bit that good at it okay burning rubber this one <laughs> the funny part is, I was better at this game on the Commodore 64 than I ever was at the arcade. I don't know why. Basically, it's a more or less a vehicle combat kind of game. Top down, you're controlling a car, and there are various, um, there are various uh, uh, vehicles that are trying to knock you off the road and trying to kill you. And if that wasn't bad enough, then there were seg there were parts where the road would end, and you would have to hit the jump button to jump the uh, to jump the the um, the space between you know where the road ends and where the nude road begins. And you could jump up and actually land on top of other vehicles for points. That's another thing you could do. Um, as you went on in the game, you would encounter uh, vehicles that were heavier and heavier and harder to move, and they would sort of like make a beeline for your car to try to bump you off the road. Um, it's a fun game, but yeah, once another one of those that could be really, really frustrating. Um, like I said, I was better at it on the Commodore rather than the arcade. I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe the gameplay was a little easier for me to deal with. I don't know. Um, food Fight. 
<laughs> this is one of those really funny games from Atari. And I remember when Spanky's got it and when Milford Rec got it. And um, Trumbull Mall, I think Trumbull Mall Arcade ended up getting it at some point. But it was one of these where basically you're a chef running around a screen and the other chefs are trying to, you know, trying to kill you. And the only way you can fight back is to run over to these objects of food and throw the food at them and try to hit them. Um, it's a fun, it's a fun game. I have to admit, it's really fun. It's really funny. But yeah, I, I mean, I like that game a lot. I didn't play it as much as some. Mark was really good at it. And I tried to pick up tips from him. But you know, somehow, I was never quite as good as he was. He was just on a different level as far as video game play than I was back in those days. Uh, Frontline. <laughs> this one. Man, I burned so many quarters playing this game. Um, basically, you are a soldier and you're running, basically, you're, it's a vertical scrolling game. You're a soldier near the bottom of the screen and you're basically trying to get to the enemy base to kill it with a grenade shot. You basically have... Uh, a control stick to move your soldier left, right, up, down, diagonally, and then you have a dial on the right which turns your gun to, ver to the, the eight angles, you know, up, down, left, right, and diagonal. And you kill your, you know, you try to shoot or kill your en the enemy soldiers with grenades. Um, the, it's, that's hard enough. <laughs> I remember when I first started trying to play this game, I couldn't get off the first screen because it was just so tough. Um, but I, eventually I got better at it. And then once you get past the area with the soldiers, which is like landmines and pits and trees that you have to go around and so forth. And you have soldiers coming from the top of the screen, from the sides and from the bottom. And you're constantly having to move and shoot, you know, to get to the next part, which is the harder part, which is, uh, now you start going up against enemy tanks. Um, there are two different types of tanks. There's the small, like, oval-shaped tank, which is small, really fast, and shoots, like, machine gun rounds. And then there's the big tank, which is, you know, basically octagonal-shaped, and it shoots um, shells at you. And that's the hard part, because not only can you get killed by getting hit with the shells, but the shells will detonate after a certain distance, and the explosion can kill you too. So, but also, there was there are tanks of your own in the stage. You know, you have like the uh, the oval shaped ones which shoots machine gun rounds, and then you have the big one which shoots the you know shoots the uh, shoots the shells. And I just remember this game was just so hard. And the funny part is, is that it's just one another one of those games I'm better at now than I was when I was 13 years old. It's really strange. Uh, the arcade in Brighton has it. Every once in a while, if I'm feeling, uh, you know, feeling adventurous, I will actually play it for a little while. Uh, Gravatar. Uh, this is one of the best, um, best games Atari ever put out. Um, it's really challenging. I mean, the, the, the learning curve in this game is extremely steep. Basically, what it is, is that you control a, a spaceship, and you can go to different planets. And each planet has a score 
uh, right next to it, which is the score you get when you clear it. Now, how do you clear it? Basically, you fly towards that planet, and gravity is in effect. <laughs> and gravity, oh God, is gravity in effect? Basically, you fly towards the planet, and now you are like coming top down towards the planet, and basically the planet can be, um, it can be like and shaped like an asteroid or it can look like um a horizontal cave system and on those are um uh gun emplacements and fuel uh fuel depots you have a fire button a thrust button and a tractor beam button it which also activates your shields um basically what it is you have to go to each planet and clear that planet of enemies and also um fuel depots and then you have to basically boost out of the atmosphere meanwhile you have a fuel count that is going down the more you use your thrust and everything like that and of course you have to use your thrust to counteract that particular plant's gravity and the higher bonus score you see on the first screen the tougher it is and the higher the gravity it is and the harder it is to get to the gun emplacements and the gun emplacements are shooting multiple shells and they're very accurate and not only that then you got to deal with the saucers coming off the side of the screen um they're trying to either shoot you or ram you and that's <laughs> you know if that's not trouble enough i mean I've seen my buddy Mark was really good at Gravatar. I was passable at it. I still had a lot of trouble with the high gravity worlds, but I mean, I've seen him like clear the whole screen of planets. Um, there's a YouTube video I used to watch. I can't remember who it was by, but he was really good at Gravatar. I mean, to where he played that game for like two, three hours and he recorded the whole thing. So yeah, Gravatar. Kangaroo. This is a quirky game by Atari. Um, basically you're a kangaroo trying to basically rescue your kids and you have monkeys trying to kill you by throwing apples at you and so forth and so on. Um, it's really weird because the next game in my list, these two are extremely similar, even though two different manufacturers made it. Um, yeah, kangaroo, that was, it was a fun game, but it was really, really hard, really, really challenging. And... Oh, I just remember it was popular for a little while, then it kind of fizzled out. But it was it was fun to play until, you know, you got frustrated with it. And it frustrated pretty much everybody, even the guys who were really good at it. And the next one in the list is Popeye, which is a... <laughs> which is just, you know, which is a uh, direct translation of the, you know, of the Popeye comic. And arguably, even though I won't say it, because it's done in the art style of Popeye with, of course, a Japanese twist because Nintendo made it. Um, you know, it could be said that it was, it came out to coincide with the Popeye movie. But I think the Popeye movie came out in 1980. So, maybe not. So, basically, you know, you're Popeye, and basically you're trying to collect the hearts. On the first screen, it's hearts. On the second screen, it's uh, musical notes. But you're trying to collect the hearts that Olive Oil tosses down towards you, and you're trying. And Bluto is trying basically to kill you, <laughs> just like the comic, comic strip, just like the cartoon. Same thing. And of course, yeah, there is spinach, and there is um, the sea hag, 
who likes to appear on the side of the screen and throw bottles at you. And, you know, you're trying to deal with all this and, you know, yeah, it can be kind of tough, especially in the later stages because Bluto gets really, really aggressive, <laughs> you know, and then uh, it's, it was just, it wasn't just so much a using the spinach to defeat him temporarily, but it was when you used it, you had to save it until you were at least halfway done collecting the hearts or the musical notes that Olive Oil uh, was throwing at you. And, of course, if you got hit by a bottle, if you, if Bluto even touched you, and if the uh, heart or musical note would reach the bottom of the screen and sink into the water, uh, it, you, know, you would lose a life. So, yeah, it got really, really busy after, like, probably five screens. Um, I never was that great at it. I was passable. I was okay. I wasn't great. Okay. Millipede. Sequel to Centipede. Centipede came out in 81, excuse me, 1980. Millipede came out in 1982. And this had more enemies, uh, more, uh, just more action in general. I mean, I was watching a, a stream from Galloping Ghost Arcade. Shout out to Doc Mac. Um, I was watching a stream off of off there where there's this one guy who was playing Millipede and he was really good. He was really, really good, but yeah, even he would get overwhelmed sometimes because you just had so many enemies on the screen. It just wasn't the centipede coming down. It was the spider or two spiders, depending on how far in the game you got. Uh, the spiders, the fleas, uh, the mosquitoes, the snails, you know, and just it just was crazy. <laughs> it just got really, really nuts. Um, I never was good at it. I tried to be, but I never was. Um, Sinistar. <laughs> Beware, I live. Yeah, that one. <laughs> this game, man, people were obsessed with this game for a little while. Um, basically, it's a free-roaming shooter. You can go in any direction. Basically, what it is, it's more or less a race. You have to gain, get energy... Uh, rocks from running into or shooting asteroids, picking them up, while your enemies are doing the same thing to create the Sinistar. And once they got enough pieces, here comes the Sinistar. And, you know, and after that, you would have to lure it close and uh, launch your energy rocks, which turned into torpedoes, which would go after the Sinistar and kill him if you had enough. <laughs> you had enough of them, and, and the Sinistar didn't track you down and kill you first. So, yeah, that game is one of the classics, if only for the sound effects. <laughs> um, Moon Patrol, another classic. Um, this game was pretty much everywhere. Uh, Trumbull Mall, uh, not everywhere, but Trumbull Mall didn't have it, but uh, one of the stores in Trumbull Mall did. I can't remember which one. I want to say it was Rexall, but I'm not 100% certain. Um... Basically, you're a moon buggy on the moon, and you're trying to get from point A to point Z. And each one, each uh, level that corresponds to a letter is fairly long and fairly challenging. And there were, you know, you basically had to shoot aliens, shoot rocks in front of you, jump over craters, jump over mines... Uh, and so forth and so on until you got to the end. 
I saw a uh, video on YouTube uh, where there was this guy who was an expert at Moon Patrol where he got to the end. And then, of course, it starts over. Super Pac-Man. This was the third in the... Or was it the... No, it was the third. You know, Junior Pac-Man was number four. But um, this was the third uh, machine in line of the Pac-Man franchise. You had Pac-Man in 80, Miss Pac-Man in 81, then this one in 82. I think this one came out in, like, late 82, like, November or December, if I'm not mistaken. Because, as we'll, as I'll talk about in story time, this game figured very, very strongly in the binge of 1982. Which is a story that I'll get to, trust me. Um, basically, you're a Pac-Man going through a maze with gates and keys laying around you have to pick up all the key pick up as many keys you can and there are fruits in various areas of the maze that could be locked away by gates and you have to find the corresponding keys to open them or um you can uh get one or the two of the super power pellets which would turn you in super pac-man which is like four times bigger the ghost can't kill him you can hit the button to increase his speed and basically uh, barge through the gates to get to the fruits and so forth. And, of course, you had the regular uh, power pellets, which would turn the ghosts purple, and you can go after them for points. And uh, the fruit bonus was a little bit different because you had different kinds of things. It was like donuts and keys and apples and other stuff. And depending on what the match was, you would get a certain amount of points. Like if you got like a donut and a key, you get like, say, 200 points. If you got two keys together, you get 5,000 points. So the trick was you had to try to get in there and get it to w when the two icons would match and you would get extra points. That's how you got more points. And I think every four stages was a bonus stage. It's either four or five. Um, they were all bonus stages, so basically you had to run through as Super Pac-Man and run through the maze as quickly as you could to get all of the fruits and, you know, to get bonus points for the end of the, uh, end of the level. Super Pac-Man. I played this game a lot in 1982. <laughs> um, the arcade in Brighton has Super Pac-Man, but it doesn't work correctly. Tax Scan. <laughs> this game, I'm telling you. This game was fantastic. I loved it. it it's a um, vector game by Sega. Um, basically, it's basically you have spaceships in a particular formation, and it's you're flying. You know, you're basically on the bottom. You're you have the illusion of flying up, and you are shooting enemies and as you shoot enemies more ship more of your ships would come down and you could get them and actually add them to your formation for extra firepower that was the first screen but the but the second screen was the interesting one because it turned into a, like a 3d perspective that you had to fly through these rings to get to the next level and it was not easy not easy at all um, it was a wonderful game, but I've only seen it in two, two particular places. Uh, the first place was in uh, 
first place was in uh, Rexall. Rexall had it for a, a, a little while. And the second place was the uh, uh, the Lafayette Plaza Arcade. Those are, the, those are the only two places I ever saw it. So, yeah, tax scan. Uh, Time Pilot, <laughs> one of the classics. I love Time Pilot. Uh, the arcade in Brighton has it. I play it every so often. Um, basically, you are a pilot in a fighter, and you are going through the various area, areas of, excuse me, eras of war. You start off in World War One, where you're shooting at biplanes, and then you go to World War Two, where you're shooting at um, Japanese Zeros and enemy, uh, like, medium, excuse me, light bombers, and then you go to 1970, which is Vietnam, where you're shooting at, uh, is shooting at helicopters, which are launching heat, uh, launching heat-seeking missiles at you, which, of course, zero in on your ship, and you have to either evade them or shoot them. Uh, 1983, you're up against uh, fighter, uh, excuse me, jet fighters that are just as maneuverable and fast as your fighter, and they're shooting at you, and they're launching missiles at you. And then you go to 2001, where you're in, where now you're in outer space, and you're shooting at, uh, shooting at uh, saucers, flying saucers, which have uh, one that's like a semi-heat semi heat seeker. It'll go at you, but you can easily evade it. And then there's just a, a regular uh, regular shot they take at you. But I think you can, I think you could shoot those. Um, you get through each level by killing the mothership. Uh, in 19, in World War One, it's a dirigible. In World War Two, it's a made, you know, it's a big bomber, like a uh, B-29 or something like that. Uh, in 1970, it's a huge bomber like a B-52. Um, in oh, I'm sorry, I take that back. I've missed one. In 1970, actually, it's a uh, dual prop helicopter. In 1983, it's a it's a B-52 bomber, and in in 2001, it's a uh, a huge flying saucer, and you would just basically kill that to go to the next one. Wonderful game, I absolutely love it. Tutankham, <laughs> oh man, this game, this game was like really a real frustration for me. Um, let's see who had it. I think Trumbull Mall had it for a little while. Milford Rec definitely had it. Um, and I think the mall, I mean, excuse me, the arcade in the, uh, in the, um, Connecticut Pulse Mall had it. Um, basically you are a, you're, you're going through the various tombs and trying to get, collect keys to get to the end to collect the treasures. I'm making it simple, but it really isn't because you had all kinds of enemies chasing you and, you know, you basically had to time it to get to your keys and get to the treasures to get to the end of the level. And as you progress in the game, it got more and more, it, a lot harder. It was really hard because even though it was like a side-scrolling game and you could, you know, go up, down, left, and right, you could only shoot left and right. So, yeah, that made it really, really tough to, tough to deal with. Xevious. This game wasn't all that popular, at least not to me. But it it was one of those games where I think the difficulty curve was a little too steep. I think that's what kind of held it back, or at least that's how it was for me. Because I could get through, like, the first two, two screens, first two levels, and then all of a sudden I would just get completely run off the game on a rail. 
Um, basically, you're you're controlling a fighter craft, and you're um, moving. You know, you're basically moving uh, along a landscape, and you have various enemies trying to kill you. Uh, you have fighters that you can shoot at, and then you have ground targets that you can bomb. And the trick was you wanted to destroy the mothership at the end of I think like second or third level or something like that, and so you can move on in the game. It was popular for a time, but I never really was really that big on it. You know, I liked it for what it was, but I just thought it got too hard too fast. Zaxxon. <laughs> this game is hilarious because nowadays everybody hates this game. I mean, I remember I've, I'm a, I belong to a couple of uh, groups on fr- on Facebook, and when this game comes up, it's like the ratio of people who like it to people who hate it is is at least 10 to 1. At least 10 to 1. I mean, I never had a problem with it. I mean, it's a 3D shooter with a... Oh, what is it called? I can't remember the viewpoint it is. It's more... It's like three-quarter view. And you're basically invading bases and shooting fuel tanks to replenish your ship's fuel, which uses fuel at a certain rate, so you have to shoot the tanks. And then you go, then um, you have to raise your ship to get through the walls because there's only one particular height that you be at in one particular location where the hole is. You have to be in that location at the right height, otherwise you crash into the wall. Then you go out into space and you're fight, you're shooting against enemy fighters, which are coming at you from different angles and so forth. And then you get to the Zaxxon's base. More shooting, uh, gun emplacements, radar emplacements, tanks, enemy fighters that are on the ground, so forth and so on, while avoiding missiles that are shooting out of the missile hole, silo holes in the, in the ground. So you have to deal with enemy, you know, deal with shots from two different directions, and then you reach the enemy Zaxxon robot. Now, this one, this was hard because you had to figure out the exact height where its missile was, which is on the right side of the robot at a certain height, and if you shot it while the missile was still in its launch tube on the robot, you would destroy the robot for, I think, a thousand points. And if you only shot the missile, you'd have to shoot the missile like eight times, I think. And... If you shot the missile while it was coming at you, it would be only 200 points, I think. And then you would start again, and now you're moving faster, you're, confusing, you're consuming more fuel, more enemies, they shoot more, you know, the missiles come out of the ground faster, so on and so forth, and, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. Um, I was halfway decent at Robotron, I'm not Robotron, sorry, I was halfway decent at Zaxxon, but... Yeah, I knew some guys who were really, really good at it who could put up, like, what, 150,000 points, you know, without any, you know, without any major difficulty. Zookeeper. <laughs> this one, man. Oh, I have such a love-hate relationship with this game. I really do. Basically, you are a zookeeper trying to keep the animals penned in. It's basically a long, rectangular area where the cage is in the middle where the uh, animals start coming out of. And basically, as you run along the perimeter of the square, you're putting down like this, you're laying bricks, basically. And the animals try and get out are, depending on what kind of animals they are in the, uh, in the game, they're 
breaking the bricks as they're trying to get out and as they get out now they're starting to run across run along that ledge where your character is and then you have to jump over them for points and then you there are these uh there these animal catching nets that you can use to put the animals back in the center and the thing was you had to you had to time it to where you're near the end of the level and all these animals are out and then you just go for the net and you grab it and then you catch them and put them back in the middle and then you're basically just running around the perimeter of the area laying more bricks to keep them in uh, until the time runs out in the level and then you would bonus points for the animals that you kept inside the uh inside the uh pen area and depend you i think it ranged from oh my god i want to say for range from like a thousand points to like a million points depending on what the animal was and i mean i've seen guys put, put up these ridiculous scores on this on that game but i really wasn't that good at it yeah so those are my top tens and honorable mentions uh, if you have any thoughts or stories involving any of these games, including your own experiences or whatever else you may have on your mind, just get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, let's go on to Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, baby, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying wet arse to my heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. Say like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced, Robotron? <laughs> okay. I've got my personal feelings about this game. I'm going to give you the information first, and then, then I'll go into talking about it. Just taken straight from Wikipedia, of course. Robotron 2084, also referred to as Robotron, is an arcade video game developed by Eugene Jarvis and Larry DeMar of VidKids and released by Williams Electronics in 1982. It's a shoot-em-up with two-dimensional graphics. The game is set in 2084 in a fictional world where robots have turned against humans in a cybernetic revolt. The aim is to defeat endless waves of robots, rescuing surviving humans, and earning as many points as possible. Robotron popularized, I can talk really, I can, the twin joystick control scheme, one that had previously been used in Arctic Electronics Mars and Taito's Space Dungeon, both from 1981 and originated with Gunfight in 1975. Excuse me. Uh, Robotron was critically and commercially successful. Uh, yes, indeed it was. Praise amongst the critics focused on the game's intense action and control scheme. The game is frequently listed as one of Jarvis's best contributions to the video game industry, and I will not argue with that. Uh, Robotron arcade cabinets have since become sought-after collector's items. It was ported to numerous platforms. Yes, it was. Um, okay, to talk about that, <laughs> let's just put it this way. When I was a kid in 1982, and this game came out, this game was you want to talk about a you want to talk about learning curve this game had a hell of a learning curve my god did it have a learning curve um 
this game started out innocently enough you could probably get to like level three or four maybe even five you know you know just having basic knowledge of the game but i mean after level five i mean level five going forward it, it just start it just the party just starts <laughs> and does not let up i mean this game to me in 1982 was Im intimidation personified i mean the most complex game out there at the time was stargate also done by williams electronics um but the control scheme and the action and and all the the various various enemies and so forth yeah that's what made that game intimidating this game the controls are simple the first eight levels are doable i mean if you had anything on the ball you could get get through the first eight levels but from level nine onward it's it was a major test of your reflexes anticipation nerve ability to think on the fly and it just doesn't let up it never did um I wasn't that great at the game, and only through uh, owning uh, like Williams Arcade Classics for the PlayStation One, and you know, and the the same game for PlayStation Two, and you know, being able to play it whenever I wanted to. And there was a time where I was living with my roommate, and her and I, we would just have massive robotron sessions because we both wanted to get good better at the game but that's how i kind of got better at the game and the funny part is is that now i'm putting up a per personal best i mean i put up a personal best of almost nine hundred thousand a couple of weeks ago and that is that still blows my mind i mean full disclosure i'm 50 years old i mean i've been playing video games for well over 40 years you know and that guy was painfully average at that game for a long time. I mean, your average score in Robotron's like 200,000 or so forth. Between 200 and 250,000. Anything over that, you were considered good. If you could get anywhere near a million points, you were something of an expert at the time. Um, but, I mean, I knew this one dude in my neighborhood, uh, this dude called Rockbox. His real name was Robert, but his, you know, his his nickname was Rockbox, and he, I remember one time I was at the news corner, and uh, they had a Robotron machine there, and he was there, and, you know, he's playing it, he's playing it, and he is just killing the game, he was just on, he's on a mission, he is just wrecking the game, and the news corner was notorious for putting their games at the highest difficulty settings in order to get more people to spend money on them. I mean that that was common knowledge to you know most people who played video games in you know in my hometown. Um, but I mean he is just cranking that game, and I and I didn't know he was that good at that game at the time. And then sometime later, I mean I'm talking with a bunch of you know my friends you know, that I grew up with in the neighborhood, and you know they were you know we were and somebody put mentioned his name and somebody said yeah he's really good at Robotron. I'm like yeah I saw him. And, you know, he was really good. But, you know, the expert that I have seen who can crank this game and just, just rock it with very little uh, and with very little effort is Greg Hansen. Yes, Greg Hansen from Arcade Impossible. 
uh, look that up on YouTube, guys, and look him up on the times where he streams on Twitch. Um, you know, Greg is really, really, really good at Robotron. He's expert. Um, he did a uh, stream, I want to say like two years ago, maybe three. It might have been three years ago, where he basically uh, was playing a Robotron machine which had the uh, high scores, or not high scores, had the score display modified. I think in the classic Robotron, it turns over 10 million points. I think with the modification one, it turns over at 100 million. I think what he was going to do is try to turn that machine over, and which required him to play for, at the very least, 12 hours or something like that. And so he had his Robotron machine in his basement, and he had a setup where he could sit down, and his wife was bringing food and drink, and I was watching him play it. I would, you know, get off of Twitch, you know, go, you know, do some things around the house and go to work and, you know, do other stuff. I'd come back and he's still playing it. And I think... I think he had to tap out somewhere about 85 million or something like that. I can't remember. I'll talk to him about it because um, I'm going to have him. He's probably going to be one of the first interviews on the show, if not the first. Um, I got a hold of him on Instagram, and he's down to do an interview, and I'm excited about that because I think this is one of the coolest dudes uh, on the uh, streaming circuit, um, streaming slash YouTube circuit. So... Yeah, I'm gonna have him on the I'm gonna have him on the show, and we're gonna talk about that. Cause yeah, <laughs> you know, I was just amazed watching this guy just crush this game. <laughs> he was really, really good. I mean, there are guys who are even better than him, but you know, just seeing a guy who's that good on that level, it's just amazing to me. You know, <laughs> I said I was thinking at the time to myself as I'm watching him, I'm like, okay. This is one of the things in life not to do. Don't play Greg Hansen at Robotron. Don't play doubles with him. Because <laughs> you might be waiting. A, if or, or if you are going to play doubles with him, go first. Because <laughs> you might be waiting for quite some time before you get your crack at it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like I said, I put up my personal best of like 891, 891,000. And I was impressed and boggled at the same time because I'm like in video gaming terms I'm kind of an old man and I find myself being getting better at some games at, at this age than when I was at 13 it's really really weird but anyway that's Robotron and if you have any questions uh, information uh, critiques if I said something that was incorrect please by all means correct me I'm not proud you know, I'm. This is my first solo podcast. I want to get better at it. So, if you've got anything, to, you know, to let me know about, just get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail dot com. Okay, onward to arcade review.
arcade review. Okay. <laughs> Let me give you a little bit of, of uh, a preview here first. Um, somewhere around episode three or four, I finally just said, you know what, if I'm going to review arcades, then I've got to review the arcades I grew up with. And that requires me to be really, really objective. <laughs> and it, I'm, I'm just going to tell you now, I'm doing this in, in trying to be as fair and as objective as, and as impartial as possible, knowing that these places were, you know, near and dear to my heart. And when each of them went away, <laughs> you know, a little piece of me died with them. You know, I mean, that's just how it is. So anyway, so I'm going to start with the Trumbull Mall Arcade. Now, you guys know that I've already done um, arcade rundown about the Trumbull Mall Arcade. I've done, uh, I've told the story about how I discovered the arcade in Trumbull Mall, and that just set me on a particular path in life. And I just, you know, of course, I'm, this is, you know, near and dear to my heart, but I'm going to be fair. Now, as I've said before, um, when I've done arcade review, it, there are five criteria. Location, selection, ambiance, functionality, value. Um, there, and each one of these criteria is rated from one to ten with half points. So, without any further ado, let's do this. Uh, Trauma Mall Arcade. Location. I gave it a 7.5. Um, Trauma Mall was fairly easy to get to. Uh, it was two miles away from my house, and I walked that distance more times than I care to even admit um, in all kinds of weather, whether it be rain, sun, snow, you know, day, you know, early morning, late at night. You know, yeah, I walked to and from that place a lot. But there were also four bus lines that went to Trumbull Mall. Uh, the number three bus, which was Madison Avenue. Number four was Park Avenue. Number eight was Main Street, which is the one I took the most because um, the closest bus stop to my house was Main Street, although Chopsy Hill Road was a close second. Um, I lived on the west end of my home street, and Chopsy Hill Road was on the east end of my home street. So, you know, if I wanted to go to the mall, and if I missed the Main Street bus and didn't feel like waiting half an hour, I'd just, take, just walk down and take the number 12. Or I would just say, screw it, and just, you know, meander my way on up there. So, yeah. Um, it also was right off of um, Connecticut Route 15, which is the Merritt Parkway, which is a highway which goes all the way from the Connecticut state line and heading east. I think it terminates at I Interstate 91 in North Haven. I think that's where it stops. I may be wrong. I can't remember. <laughs> and I don't feel like pulling up Google Maps to confirm it. So, yeah, 7.5. Plenty of ways to get to it. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, like I said, you know, just easy to get to, you know, no matter which way you were coming from, you know, north, south, east, west. It was right off Main Street. And it was, you know, basically it was nestled in between Main Street and Madison Avenue. So anyone coming from Trumbull could come down either one of those streets to get to it. Um, and, you know, of course, you could take public transportation to get to it, as well as off the highway. Selection, 
Now, I had to give it high marks because Trumbull Mall Arcade always had a good selection of games going all the way back to the, early, the late 70s when I first found it. Um, I think the total of games they had, I think the highest number of games was somewhere between 40 and 50. I think it was that high. Um, they started out, of course, with arcade games, had two pool tables, and of course they had pinball machines. Um, they had all that in, you know, 1979 when I first discovered the place, or excuse me, 78. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, then they phased out the pool tables when Space Invaders hit, and that craze happened when people were constantly on that game, and then it just kept going in that direction uh, in Space Invaders, then it was Galaxian, then it was Asteroids, then it was Pac-Man, then it was Donkey Kong, and so on and so forth, just going that way. And with each successive year, you know, um, with the exception of the uh, USA versus Russia hockey game uh, that came out in 1980, it was all arcade games and pinball machines. And then finally, in, I want to say... 83, maybe 84, I think they phased out all the pinball machines, and they just went strictly arcade machines at that point. Probably 83 or 84, somewhere in there. Um, but So yeah, I give it an 8.5, because not only did they have a lot of machines, they were rotating in and, in machines in and out at a fairly reg, on a fairly regular basis. Ambiance. I give this a 5, because... The place had normal fluorescent lighting and bare walls and carpeting. Uh, very rarely did they have any music playing over the PA. And if they did have music playing, it was usually um, a radio station or something. I mean, it wasn't anything major. Uh, I think once or twice they tried to gain get some atmosphere by using like yellow-colored fluorescent lights in the ceiling. And there were a couple times they just basically shut... Uh, most of the most of the lights off, and you know, to just kind of let the video game, the arcade games, and the pinball machines light the place up, which was a decent attempt. I'll give them that, but it was a bit of a letdown, to be honest. So I give it a five. I mean, I could have gone lower, but I think five is fair. Functionality, eight point five. Um, if there was one thing about the Trumbull Mall Arcade, the games were almost always in good working order. They very ra they rarely had games that were out of order, and if they were out of order, they weren't that way for long. Um, if Unless it was a game with specialized hardware, like the laser games like Mach 3 or Space Ace. Those were difficult to fin, they went down. If they were down, they stayed down for quite some time because they, it was kind of hard and kind of expensive to get them fixed. <laughs> like today, you have to take out a second mortgage to like properly fix a, a Dragon's or Space Ace machine. Um, so yeah, I give the functionality 8.5. You know, most of, if not all of the games were working and they were in good working order. If one game had a directional controller that wasn't working or a fire button that wasn't working or whatever it is, um, all you had to do was get hold of like uh, Carlo or Eric, you know, and let them know about it and they'd get it fixed. Value, 8.5. When I first started going to Trummel Arcade, I ran everything off quarters, of course. I can't remember the year they made the switch. I want to say it was 82. But when they started using tokens, 
they started going with specials. I mean, the normal deal was five tokens for a dollar, twenty-five for five dollars. Um, every once in a while, they would have six for a dollar, thirty for five, but it wasn't that often. Um, they didn't have uh, token machines that took tens. If they had token machines that took $10 bills, I think that was towards the end of their run. I want to say like 86, 87, somewhere in there. But that's how it was. So the, you know, the collective score is a 38. Uh, divide that by 5, you get an average rating of 7.6, which is definitely above average to good. Um, like I said, I racked my brain for all the memories I had of the place, and I tried to be fair, and that's what I came up with. Um, those who went to the Trumbull Mall Arcade, um, drop me a line at uh, arcadeaddictbrian.com, or excuse me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com, let's get it right, and, you know, uh, let me know if you agree or disagree. Uh, let me know what your memories are of that arcade you know, in the bridge, you know, those people who grew up in that area in the 70s and 80s. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. Okay, that is Arcade Review, and now we are going to go to my On the Road segment. So here it is, On the Road. Hey folks, Brian here, at work, cruising the back roads between Chelsea and Dexter, Michigan, and, uh, oh, forgot the time check, I forgot my own freaking procedures, how about this, it is Monday, July 2nd, 2018, time is 3.22 p.m., I did like a little mini run uh, Saturday. Yeah, it was Saturday. I just want, I wanted to go to the arcade in Brighton, but it was just way too damn hot. It was probably about 93, maybe 94, and the heat index was well up over 100. I'd say it was probably like 103, 104, something like that. So I just decided you know, let's compromise. Um, my girlfriend got my son down for a nap, or at least she tried to. <laughs> yeah, my son has a lot of energy, and I've got to do things with him to help him burn it off so that he will uh, take a nap in the afternoon just so that he's good for the rest of the evening so he can go to bed and go to sleep. Um, but on days like Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, usually I'll take him for a walk. And on those kind of days, it's just way too hot. Way too hot for me, never mind him. So we just got to kind of deal with it, with his 
you know, high energy antics. You know, he's going to be four in a couple of weeks. And it's just amazing watching this kid grow physically, mentally, and emotionally. It's a trip. I mean, it's just something else just to see him figuring things out. You know, him sort of, when he gets upset now, he runs to his room and he'll put himself in his room for like two or three minutes to get out whatever is bugging him. And then he'll just, you know, then he'll come out and it all's right with the world. It's almost like nothing happened. I almost envy him because I didn't have that when I was his age. That is for damn sure. Anyway, so, you know, I went downtown, went to Pinball Pete's. I wasn't there for long. You know, I only spent a dollar. I played uh, Street Fighter 2 Champion Edition, got all the way to Bison, although I lost a couple of fights en route, and I just couldn't get, I just was screwing up against Bison, and Bison is just one of those end bosses that, yeah, you screw up once or twice, you're done. So, I mean, my high score was like, what, what, 930,000, something like that, which is above average for me. You know, usually when I get to Bison and I'm not having a really good run through the first 12 fights, yeah, my score is usually between 750 and 800,000. Sometimes, you know, somewhere around 900,000. So 950 is about above average. I mean, the one time that I went to Pinball Pete's and played and got through the whole game without losing a fight and beat Bison, I got, what, a million one? That's the wonderful thing I love about Street Fighter is that, you know, you can rack up a pretty impressive score if you do certain things. Like if you end a fight with, I use Sagat. So if you end a fight with Sagat's Tiger Uppercut, that's 6,000 points. Just just hitting, just finishing somebody with a fierce Tiger Uppercut is 6,000 points. I think it's 3,000 for a strong, and like I think it's 1,500 for a jab uppercut, which is, used more for defense um, against, you know, the opponent. But anyway, yeah, I got about 930, 940, something like that. Didn't finish it. Then, you know, I just walked around and, you know, I, you know, pinball pieces are all right for an arcade. You know, you know, too many ticket games and too many uh, dance games for my taste, you know, but they do have the new, uh, Star Wars pod game, which was $2 to play, which kind of goes against my principles as an old school arcade game player. I mean, it kind of sticks in my craw a little bit to, um, 
play Street Fighter 2 Champion Edition for 50 cents. Now, I understand they got bills to pay, and I understand that paying rent in a storefront in downtown Ann Arbor is hella expensive. I mean, I see so many businesses come and go in downtown Ann Arbor because they can't sustain the level of business they have to sustain in order to break even. But at the same time, I'm just like, you know, yeah, it bugs me a little bit to pay pay 50 cents to play freaking Street Fighter 2. It does. I mean, almost all of their pinball machines are a dollar, regardless of era. I mean, they've got the new uh, Iron Maiden uh, pinball machine. And it might be me getting old, but it also just might be the machines. But I find that a lot of Stern machines are just a little too fast for me. The action is just a little too fast. The shots are a little too, require a little too much precision. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I watch Jack Danger on Twitch. Because Jack Danger's a, a good pinball machine player. He is. I mean, he's not like upper echelon, like all the guys that go to like, um, you know, all the tournaments in like the East and the South and the Midwest. But he's really good. You know, he figures he'll just take a machine, get it in his studio, and he'll know nothing about it, and he'll just figure it out. You know, with some help from some of the, some of his uh, some of the people who watch his stream. But he's really, really good. Um, but yeah, I mean, pinball piece is okay. I mean, I really want to just go to the arcade in Brighton. I really, really do. But it's just having, number one, the energy to do it. You know, full disclosure, I work three jobs. You know, there are some days where I leave my house at 5.30 in the morning to get to work by 6. And I don't get home until some days, you know, 7, 7, 8 o'clock at night. So I don't make that trip as much as I want to. I want to at least go once a month, maybe even twice. But, you know, finances are a little bit tight, a little, you know, just a little tight. So sometimes I have to compromise and pinball pizza is the compromise. I mean, you know, so yeah, I played Street Fighter 2, got to the end, lost, had an above average score. Um, then I just had the bright idea to go up on the street level storefront for Pinball Pete's where they have a bunch of Williams machines. I mean, they've got, what is it? Uh, Moon Patrol, Defender, Stargate, Robotron, Bubbles... Uh, and one more that I can't remember. And then across from that, you know, right across from it is a staircase going down to Pinball Pete's, and across from the stairway entrance is a bunch of uh, soda and water machines. Um, so yeah, I mean, I went up there, and let's see what I, played Robotron first, 
uh, the fire control on it is not working correctly, and I'm seriously considering if I can get away with it working weekends at Pinball Pete's just for an ex some extra money, even if it's just enough to put gas in my car, and um, you know, just to work in an arcade. Although I need to ask the people at uh, the arcade in Brighton see if they want, you know, somebody else to work their, you know, work their front end, because I do that, I do that on weekends for, you know, six hours a day, no problem. You know, I'd have no problem going into, you know, going into work, getting out of work at like five thirty six, just roll straight over to the arcade and work there until like close, which is like 11 o'clock or midnight. The problem is, is that my son would miss me. My girlfriend would miss me. Yeah, it wouldn't be so great of an idea from a family standpoint. Um, so, oh, well, I'm at a customer right now, so I will be right back. I'm gonna pause it. Okay, I'm back if only for a minute or two before I have another customer stop. Um, so yeah, I went up there and I started messing around. I played Robotron. Like I said, the fire controls were a little wonky. I only got to, what, stage nine, which is, you know, about right for me. I mean, especially if the, the machine's not working properly. Um, and then, you know, after that, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to get this bad taste out of my mouth because, you know, it just kind of sticks in my craw a little bit to play a machine that's not working properly, especially a uh, game that I like, you know, it was like that with, uh, Street Fighter 2 Champion Edition at Pinball Pete's for a long time, but they finally got it fixed and now it works just fine. And, you know, now I can rock it again. So just to get the taste out of my mouth, I decided to play Defender. I haven't played Defender in an arcade, oh my god, I want to say, it's been years, and I think the last time I actually played it was at Pinball Pete's, and I didn't do so well. I think I only, uh, that time I think I only scored like 50,000 points, and that's not so great. That's not good at all. So, yeah, I played Defender, and I'm at a customer, so I'm going to pause it. Be right back. Okay, I'm back. Uh, for another couple of minutes, then I'm at another customer. Um, so, yeah, I played Defender with for the first time in years. Defender is one of those games that just doesn't translate very well into almost any other uh, medium be it uh, emulation to a PC through a program like MAME or a, or a, a gaming console. Now, don't get me wrong, the game translates just fine. It plays just like it does in the arcade. The problem is, is that in order to play Defender and play it well, 
you have to either play the arcade machine itself or get a uh, control stick. Get the proper control stick for it. Because playing it with a handheld game controller, you know, like on your PlayStation or Xbox, it doesn't work quite as well. It doesn't translate. The feeling is all wrong. So I'm at my customer now, so I will be back. I will come back in a moment. Okay, I'm back. So yeah, as I was saying, Defender's just one of those games because I grew up with the actual game machine that once you've figured out how to play Defender with that with the button setup for you know on the arcade machine it's really hard to to shift over I've noticed over the years I mean I have like let's see what a Williams uh, arcade greatest hits I've got it on my PS1 and my PS2 and I never could quite it never was quite comfortable no matter what layout or setup I had. Um, so yeah. So this is the first time I played a Defender Machine in quite some time. And now that I think about it, it wasn't working that well the last time I played it. Well, actually, no, I take that back. The last time I played it was maybe four or five months ago at the arcade. That's the last time I played Defender. And I didn't do so do so hot. I think I got like an average score of like 60, 70,000. That's about average for me. Well, this time I got 140,000, which was, I haven't played a game of Defender that well in at least 20 years, if not longer. You know, Defender is, what, 38 years old now? I mean, it came out in 1980. And, yeah, that's the first time I played Defender, and I did that well. You know, it was... It was kind of... It felt good. I mean, the buttons felt good. The controller felt good. You know, the responsiveness was good. You know didn't make a lot of boneheaded mistakes you know it was it was a good it was a good session it was a good game and if it wasn't for the fact that these machines are like right by the front entrance you know and the temperature up around there was somewhere above 90 degrees which kind of probably helped it kind of helped I think it helped loosen me up a little bit and it was just one of those it was just one of those games where yeah I mean I just did well I mean I was surprised I mean it, it kind of bummed me out when I finished the game at you know just over 140,000 and I found out that to get on the permanent top 10 I needed 148,000 that was a bit of a bummer but I mean aside from that it was fine. I mean, it was wonderful. It was a good game. I mean, I was a little shocked that I did so well. Usually, my, you know, my, like I said, my average game at Defenders about 70, 80,000. 
above average is up over 100. To do 140 is pretty, pretty good. Especially, you know, especially considering I haven't played it with any kind of seriousness in at least 20 years. So, and the other thing was, is that the other kind of good thing that I saw when I was in Pinball Peaks is that they have a 25th anniversary uh, Galaga slash Ms. Pac-Man machine. And of course, with those, it has a high score save function. Well, as I said in a previous recording, you know, oh God, I want to say it was like at least six months ago, I straight nined it. 999,990 points. And after that, I just let it go. I just let it kill all my lives. And I didn't lose very many. I think I lost maybe three lives getting to that point, which is really good for me. And I saw that my high score was still there, including my second place score of 999,960 points, which was awesome. You know, that was just cool just to see. You know, those were still there. I still want to know who put up a score of 441,000 on this Pac-Man. And I don't think it might be that it's a hyper Ms. Pac-Man, which would explain it. It's either that. I mean, either way, you have to be really good to score that high, put that high of a score on Ms. Pac-Man, whether it's the hyper is Pac-Man uh, game, or is it, if it's the standard one. If it's a standard one, 441,000 is an awesome score. It really is. But, uh, yeah, I saw that. I mean, a couple of machines that I used to like to just play, but I'm pretty sure they didn't get a lot of money into them, was like, they had an original Punch-Out in there, which was fun, because... I could put the high score up on that all day. I mean, I'm, I'm nowhere, nowhere near good as, like, Zallard, uh, Zallard 1, who's, like, a world record holder at Punch-Out and Super Punch-Out. Um, but, you know, it's just fun to put up a score of, like, 200,000 and just, you know, let it sit there. You know, I mean, I'm better at Super Punch-Out than I am for regular Punch-Out even though my main complaint with with Punch-Out and Super Punch-Out is that a couple of the fighters you face in, uh, especially Super Punch-Out's guilty of this. Um, in Super Punch-Out, you go through Bear Hugger, Dragon Chan... Great Tiger and Super Macho Man. That's all. That's all the ones, all the fighters you get. In regular Punch Out, you get Glass Joe, Piston Hurricane, Bald Bull, um, Kid Quick, Pizza Pasta, Mr. Sandman. Those are the six fighters you get when you start. And then, as you progress through the game, the only ones that you do end up getting, keep fighting, are like Glass Joe, Piston Hurricane, Ball Bull, and Mr. Sandman. Just those four. In Super Punch-Out, you get Bear Hugger, Dragon Chan, 
after you go through the first and win the title. It's like Bear Hugger, Bear Hugger Dragon Chan. Um, oh God, what was the other one? And, and I, oh, oh, that's right, Vaker Drakensky. Vaker Drakensky and Super Macho Man. Those are the only ones you get. And they just get harder and harder the further along you go. I'm trying to think. The highest score I ever put up on Super Punch-Out was like, I want to say like 300 and, I'd say probably like 350, 375,000, somewhere in there. And, yeah, I just, I mean, I sat back and I watched Zallard play, you know, play it in emulation and play it in, um, I think he played it on his, his, uh, the new Nintendo system, if I'm not mistaken. They actually put, uh, I think they put, like, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. I think they put, like, Super Nintendo, Super Punch-Out, and the both arcade versions on the game. And he actually, he got that thing down to a science. I mean, to a point where... It's just like, watching him play is just like, amazing. I mean, I think he put up like, a, a record of like, 1.3 million on Super Punch-Out. I think that's a, a record that's on the Nintendo High Scoreboards, or whatever they're called. And, you know, just seeing him just do it is just, you know, amazing. And also that, and they also had had a time attack one where you had only a certain amount of time to get through as many opponents as you could before time ran out, and the score you racked up was your final score, which was actually kind of cool. I like that time attack mode kind of uh, game. But, I mean, he's got the game down so... He's got it so wired that... He just would put up these ridiculous scores, and I'm just like, wow. I mean, it's cool to watch, but it's just like, I can never emulate that. I don't have the time, and quite honestly, when you get into that level of, I won't say obsession's the wrong word, but your just dedication to being the best at it, it takes the fun out of playing it. I know because I was like that with several games, you know, back in the day. And I just didn't like being that just obsessed over it. The only game that I really was like that about and I still had fun playing was like uh, Karate Champ. And ever since that one game that I got all the way to the final fight, and I lost two points to one and a half. I had been trying, I tried for like, oh God, I want to say, oh, I want to say I tried for a good solid, oh man, I want to say good solid three months to get back to that place that I couldn't, which is unfortunate. And the problem is, is that with Karate Champ, the difficulty levels varied so widely, you know, between machines 
that the strategies that I came up with on one machine that would stand me in good stead, they didn't work anywhere near as well on another machine. And that's just how it was. So yeah, my score of 210,500 points still stands to this day. I mean, of course, there are guys in Japan who have beat that game pretty soundly. I'm, I'm certain of that. I am absolutely certain of that. But when you get to that level of trying to master a game and you're trying to get every single point that you can while doing it, it takes all the fun out of it. takes all the fun out of it. I mean, even watching, like, there's a channel on YouTube called Replay Burners, which is just people from all over the world playing these classic games, you know, from going from, like, 1996 backwards, all the way back. And... You know, I'm watching, I mean, these come up on YouTube all the time. You know, I would, I recommend watching that channel because some of the gameplay is what I call genuine and real to where, um, where, you know, people aren't point pressing. You know, like in Donkey Kong, I mean, that's one of, that's where that term kind of came from, point pressing, where you, in order to get as high of a score as you could, if you were really good at Donkey Kong, you could get to the kill screen, which is a ridiculous number of levels. I forget, I think it's like 255 levels or something like that, but you could get to the kill screen. And once you could get to the kill screen, the next order of business would be to get as much as high of a score as you could you know before you got to the kill screen so that required point pressing which was hanging out on levels jumping over barrels uh when you got to the end of the level on the girder level where donkey kong's at the top and there's a spot uh right next to him where you can basically just jump in place and hit the right hit right on the control stick while you're in the air and you get 100 points for doing it and you're doing this so many times that you're actually making more you're actually earning more points than if you just completed the level so um so yeah I mean there are just every once in a while there just are you know, people who are playing the game and they're point pressing. And that takes all the enjoyment of watching somebody, you know, playing a game, takes all the enjoyment out of it. You know, I mean, uh, shout out to John's Arcade. I watch his YouTube channel all the time. And every once in a while, he's on a quest to score, was it 300,000 points on Donkey Kong? And, you know, Actually, big shout out to him because, you know, he's another inspiration for this podcast where um, I'm just, 
watching this guy. I mean, he's got an arcade in the basement. You know, he's purchased all these machines. He's fixed the majority of them. You know, I mean, he goes into these multi-part episodes where he tries to fix an arcade machine that is either broken down or he bought it in bad condition and he wants to fix it and make it an addition to his arcade. I mean, he's got, like, I want to say, oh, God, da, 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 in his basement, I'd say he's got, like, 35 to 40 machines, and they're all classic games, you know, ranging from the, I think he's got a Space Invaders machine, I think that's the oldest game he's got in there, you know, all the way up to um, modern uh, fixes on, like, Donkey Kong, like a Donkey Kong machine, he's got like the regular Donkey Kong. He's got like uh, he's like Donkey Kong Remix, and then Donkey Kong Hard version. You know, he's he's basically installed ships in his machine to where you can switch between the three games, which I think is awesome. And he's done the same thing with Donkey Kong Junior. because someone came out with a harder version of Donkey Kong Junior. and you know he's you know, put that into his machine, he's played that, so, big shout out to him, um, but getting back to my point, watching people point press just sort of takes my whole thing out, takes all, it takes it out of it, I mean, I've watched people point press in games like Defender, where they hang around at the end of the thing, at the end of the level where there's like, uh, a land, no, not a lander, but like a, a bomber left, or a, a swarm pod left, or something like that, and then they just basically go flying around and shooting down baiters, you know, who are these little thin flying saucer things that are faster than your ship is at full throttle, and, you know, they start uh, warping in multiples at a time, and, you know, I'll just see a guy do point pressing on that, and it's just sort of like, that's boring. It's like, if you're good, be good at it. You know, play the game straight up. That's the way I look at it. You know, I may be old school in that line of thinking, but you want to know what? Yeah, I am old school. I mean, I was around playing these games back in 1980. You know, back in 1981, which in terms of like Ms. Pac-Man, Stargate, and so on and so forth, so that's how I learned how to get good at these games, to play them straight up. There's only a couple of games that I played where they have like a secret warp game, or a secret warp, you know, say like Crystal Castles, which is what, 1983? Dude, 82 or 83. Excuse me, I had to take a drink. Talking for so long, you know, drives my throat out. But um, Crystal Castles had the secret warps. They actually had three. And, you know, that's one thing. You know, because you could just skip ahead to where the game is much more of a challenge for you instead of just going through the normal levels, which is fine. You know, that's how I learned, learned how to play the game from my buddy Mark. And... He, you know, he showed me all of these things, and, you know, I learned how to play the game that way. But anyway, 
but yeah, just sticking around point pricing is just boring. You know, it's like just play the game straight up and get your get your score on your own merits. I mean, but there was this one game, and if anybody knows what game this is, drop an email at to me, uh, arcadeaddictbrian, all one word, at gmail.com. Um, there's this one game which was like a platformer where you would start at the, at like the top level, or, you know, not the top level, you start at like the first level, and you would go down staircases, and you had like this, uh, this like, um, rope weapon, or cable weapon, and I think you had a jump button, and that was it. And you would go all the way down and face the boss at the end of the level, killing enemies as you went, and then you would get the score beating the boss based off the timer. And there was one, and you could, you could actually warp to the end of the first level by jumping over the barrier to the left. It was like you would start on the left-hand side of the screen, or start from the left-hand side of the maze, I should say, or the complex, or whatever you want to use, and you would go down these stairs and kill enemies as you went, going down to the boss. Now, if you timed your jump just right over the barrier, if you timed your jump just right, you would get to the boss, and you would actually be able to kill the boss immediately, and he wouldn't be able to get at you. He wouldn't be able to shoot at you. And you would get the you get like a million point bonus. And you, then you warp to the second level and you couldn't do that with the second level, unfortunately. You have to play the second level straight up and the third level and so on. And it was a game that I used to play, I wanna say, oh God, what year was it? I wanna say that was circa like 1980. It was somewhere between 1985 and 1988 because it was in, the news, it was at the News Corner, which is a place I'm going to describe if I haven't already, because God only knows when I'm going to put this little on-the-road segment up on the podcast, but it was at the News Corner. It wasn't one, it wasn't a game that was from, like, it, I think it was a game that was from Japan, at least imported from Japan, but it wasn't, like, Namco or uh, Sega, or Nintendo, or the usual suspects. It was a more rare uh, uh, game company. I almost want to say it was like Sammy or something, but I know that's not right. I think Sammy's a United States-based company. I mean, I want to ask like, you know, like uh, John's Arcade or something like that. You know, guys who really, really, really know arcade machines and they've forgotten everything I'll ever know and I'm, I consider myself fairly knowledgeable about arcade machines. But, you know, if anybody has any idea, because I've been asking around on the internet for years, because I would love to find this game. And I don't think it's in emulation because I have a full set of emulated games from a, oh god, a version of MAME that is, I want to say, like, four or five months old, something like that, and it's a full set of, like, 15,000 games. I don't think 
you know, I've done searches. I've spent time in that collection trying to find this game, and I've been doing it for years. Almost, I almost want to say decades, but I've been doing it for a very long time, and I just can't find the, this game. So if anybody has an idea of what game it might be, drop me an email. Um, if I had my phone number for voicemails for uh, Confession of an Arcade Addict, silly me, I should have that with me. But um, drop me a line through email and let me know if you know what game this is, because I would love to find it. Because it's just one of those games from my late teen, early 20s years that I would just love to find and play again. So, with that being said, I'm going to sign off here because I'm only about five minutes away from getting back to the shop and I've got work to do before I can clock out and go home. So, until next time, this is Brian on the road. See you next time. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music is provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. If you wish to contact the show, you can drop an email at arcadeaddictbrian, that's all one word, at gmail.com. We also have a voicemail number for the show. It is 734-743-2433. Until next time, this is... The Confessions of an Arcade Addict Podcast.